0: Well, good morning. Great to see you on this family day weekend. And uh, I thought it would just be uh, appropriate to just stop for a minute and uh, talk about one thing that is so alive in the media and alive in the hearts and minds of people in Vancouver and, of course, people around the world, the, the coronavirus. And uh, I think that as God's people, it's really important to walk with with wisdom. We, we take precautions, But at the same time, we don't walk in fear because fear leads to irrational behavior. Uh, I think it's even helpful just to remember that influenza in Canada uh, every year takes about 3,500 lives. And so sometimes something is present in the media and it just becomes much larger than it actually is. At the same time, our desire is to walk in love, to walk in love for those living in Wuhan. For those in Hubei province in China to express our love for China and the Chinese people. So let's walk with wisdom and walk with love but not with fear. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we are grateful because you have gifted us with life. And you are the one and the only one that numbers our days. And so we thank you for your sustaining grace. We thank you for the gift of being here this morning. Uh, We pray for those affected by the coronavirus. Those in Wuhan, those in Hubei province, those in other parts of China, and even other parts of the world. Father, we pray for their healing. We pray for the medical personnel, Uh, many of them tired, uh, many of them exposed. Father, we pray for their protection. We pray for an end to the virus. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. We pray that, Lord, they would be comforted. We pray for the church in China that would be strengthened today, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that they would reach out in love to those around them. And so we thank you that you are present and at work in China, and we thank you that you're present and at work here among us. And in this moment, Lord, would you speak to us by your word? Help us to understand it and to obey it in our day. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 9, and the overriding question is why why would God judge A hard question to grapple with sometimes. Why would God judge? If you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 1033, I believe. If you look at this Russian doll, you say, well, there's a doll and there's a woman. If you were up close, you would see a woman holding some bread. And if you don't know anything about Russian dolls, you might think, well, that's all there is. And then you twist it and there's a little man in there, and he's holding a cat. And then you might think, okay, that's very cool. There's a woman and a man inside, and then you twist it again, and there's another little man, and he has absolutely nothing in his hands. A Russian doll, different layers. There's more than there appears to be initially. And I'm just going to put my dolls down and they're going to look at you throughout the message, make sure you're paying attention and please don't come up and play with them. You know, when we're reading through the book of Revelation, we read through the seven seals and, uh, you know, they present this picture of what's going on and we might think, okay, wow, that's fascinating. And then we read a little farther, turn a few more pages and we get to the seven trumpets. And then if we read even farther, we get into the seven bowls and the seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, they are just layers of the same events. They are layers of the same realities. And so it's just important to have that perspective. And today when we open the book of Revelation to chapter 9, we look at one of the darker layers. It's a dark layer that's hard to look at. We would rather avoid it, but it's necessary in order to see 2020 chapter 9, it actually is one of the most difficult passages in all of scripture, to read and to preach. I would love to go to the end of chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 15, where we read, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Such a wonderful word about the kingdom of God becoming a reality in our lives forever, Jesus returning. And I would just love to go there, but I quote that verse from chapter 11 to let you know that there is something beautiful, something wonderful, something redemptive just around the corner. But in order to get there, we need to go through the valley of chapter 9. With the first four trumpets, the first four trumpets in chapter 8, we saw God in his sovereignty working through the forces of nature, bringing judgment on the earth, on the sea, on uh, streams of water, so uh, fresh water, and also the sky. In his mercy, God restrained his judgments. Those judgments were not complete. Only a third of the four spheres were impacted. So the first four trumpets, they were warnings of of future judgments, should the first four not be heeded. At the end of chapter 8, verse 13, we see an eagle flying in the sky. Chapter 8, verse 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So the eagle, it, it signals something ominous, something foreboding. It carries a message. Whoa, 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 three woes. And with the three woes, the judgments will actually intensify. The worst is yet to come. As we walk through chapter 9, we're going to answer a number of questions. First question, who is being judged? The second question, how are they being judged? The third question, why are they being judged? Why would God judge? The fourth question, what happens to God's people during these judgments? And the fifth question, how should we as followers of Jesus live in light of these coming judgments? So, first question. Who is being judged? Chapter 8, verse 13 reads, Woe to those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, that phrase, it appears at least eight times in Revelation. And every time it appears, it refers to those who live in rebellion against God, those who are opposed to God and his people. These are people who do not want the kingdom of God to come to earth. They do not want to submit to the one who sits on the throne. They're committed to a life apart from God, independent of God. They want nothing to do with God. So repeating a point from the last message last weekend, know that God will judge every person, every people group, every nation opposed to him. Know that God will judge every person, every people group, and nation opposed to Him. How are those opposed to Him, those who dwell on the earth, to be judged? Chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses, like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Wow, that is a lot of information to digest in one reading, right? One author identifies these locusts with uh, the cobra helicopters that were used in Vietnam with nerve gas coming out of their tails. Another author talks about these locusts being aliens, kind of like what we see in the movie Independence Day. To make those kinds of associations misses the point of Revelation chapter 9. Let's look at it in a little more detail. With the sounding of the fifth trumpet, John sees a star fallen from heaven to earth. Who is the star? It's a really important question. The star is the angel of the bottomless pit, Satan, the archenemy of Jesus Christ. His name is Abaddon, means destruction in Hebrew, or the place of the dead. In Greek, Apollyon, similar meaning, destroyer. Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning when he sent out the 72 disciples on mission. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Notice that Jesus uses the language of snakes and scorpions to refer to demonic powers. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read that the serpent is thrown to the earth. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the fallen star is Satan, the destroyer, the deceiver of the world. The key to the shaft of the bottomless pit is given to him, the key to the abyss, The bottomless pit, the abyss, that's the place of utter evil, of destruction, hell. Who gives the key to Satan? Well, according to Revelation 1 verse 8, the one who has the key to death and Hades is Jesus. So Satan doesn't have the power to take the key, it is given to him. It's an important point. Satan can do nothing apart from God's permission. His power is limited. With the key, Satan unlocks the shaft to the bottomless pit and smoke rises from the shaft and from the billowing smoke come swarms of locusts darkening the sky. It reminds us of the eighth plague in Egypt where there was a swarm of locusts and it darkened the land of Egypt. Similar things are happening today. Uh, In East Africa today, there's a locust plague. So here's a news report from yesterday from the Smithsonian and BBC. Billions of desert locusts are swarming across eastern Africa, mainly affecting Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia, but likely to spread further. The swarms are massive. One of the largest in Kenya is 60 kilometers long, and 40 kilometers wide. Can you imagine? A swarm of locusts, 60 kilometers long, 40 kilometers wide. That's just one swarm. The swarms are dense enough at times to block the sun. One UN official says, this is an unprecedented situation that we are facing. Massive food assistance may be required. Efforts to control the infestation have so far not been effective. The insects are multiplying so fast their number could multiply 500 times by June. One reporter was saying that a a farmer will see a cloud on the horizon and think, oh good, rain is coming. (laughs) But then, in a few minutes, the swarm of locusts will arrive, and within minutes or hours, the whole crop will be gone because desert lo- locusts, they devour everything. In scripture, locusts, they just spell destruction. Look at how strange these locusts are in Revelation chapter 9. They're like horses prepared for battle with something like crowns of gold on their heads. Their faces like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. That's the way many of us look in the morning, right? (laughs) Notice that they are not, but they resemble. And so they have something resembling crowns of gold on their heads but they are not true golden crowns. They claim an authority that is actually not theirs. They're imposters. They're imitators. They have a very strange appearance, right? It comes from many different places. And this strange composite appearance, it indicates that they actually picture something beyond themselves. These locusts are not like normal locust insects like those in, in uh, Egypt in the book of Exodus or those, the locusts that are right now ravaging, you know, eastern Africa, that strip re- re- vegetation. These locusts with the power of scorpions, they actually don't touch the grass, the plants, and the trees. Did you notice that in verse 4? Strange locusts. But they are given permission to sting those who dwell on the earth for five months. That's the life cycle of a locust. I think God gives that time five months just to demonstrate again that He is sovereign, the suffering is limited. Who is the leader of the locusts? The king of the locusts is Satan himself. So these strange locusts, what they are is demonic powers capable of inflicting mental, emotional, spiritual torment. They have one objective, to harm, to demoralize, to destroy people made in God's image. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now some would argue in our day that the demonic realm, referred to by the scriptures, just doesn't exist. That's that's a figment of our imagination. That's just imaginary. I won't make an extensive argument for the existence of the demonic realm, but I will just say this, that Jesus, he believed in this realm and he exercised authority over it. The apostles believed in this realm. People around the world, no matter what culture they come from, no matter what religion they are a part of, believe in this realm. And they try to protect themselves from it. They try to work with it. They try to overcome it in some way. The belief in this realm is actually pervasive around the world. And if you watch you know, TV shows in North America or watch movies in North America today... Our shows, our movies are just immersed in the language of this realm, the images of this realm. Surveys in Canada demonstrate that there is widespread belief in the angelic and demonic realm in Canada. So as followers of Jesus, we need to have a biblical perspective, right, on this realm, and know that in Jesus we can walk in freedom and that we actually have authority over this realm we do not need to walk in fear the fifth trumpet it reveals the increase of demonic activity as the coming of jesus approaches as this era of divine restraint comes to a close in verse six those who are being stung they're plunged into desperation they long to die they they want to die life isn't worth living for them but they cannot die death keeps fleeing from them Verse 20 will reveal the irony of their suffering that the very one they worship is inflicting suffering on them. And this is, again, a reality of the demonic realm. Satan postures. He seduces people with life, with wealth, with status, with power, with pleasure, and then he holds in contempt those who worship him. He seduces people and then turns on them and inflicts mental, emotional, and spiritual pain. This already is very sobering, but it's not the end. Verse 12 The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the river euphrates so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour the day the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000 i heard their number and this is how i saw the horses in my vision and those who rode who rode them they wore breastplates like uh, the, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. They wound. Again, a lot of information there. The sixth angel, he sounds his trumpet, and a voice comes from the four horns of the golden altar. Again, that golden altar, that's the altar of incense before the throne of God. It is from that altar of incense that the prayers of God's people rise to God. The sixth angel, he is told to release four evil, destructive angels that are bound at the river Euphrates, they are to be released to kill a third of humankind. Notice that the timing of their release is exact. The, the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Again, that communicates that God is sovereign. He determines the timing. Secondly, the extent of their destruction is determined. So again, God is in sovereign control. He is executing his plan. There's a massive army of mounted troops 200 million strong. It resembles the locust swarm of the first woe. I think context is helpful here. The Roman Empire at this time, at the time of the writing of Revelation, had an army of about 125,000 soldiers. They had another 75,000 in reserve. So an army of about 200,000. The army being mentioned here is 1,000 times that size. The Euphrates River is the boundary, it was the boundary, sorry, between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire extended from eastern Turkey all the way to eastern Iran. They were known for their mounted troops. So this image would be horrifying for Roman citizens of the first century. They feared an invasion from the Parthians, an invasion that would topple the Roman Empire. But when we read this passage today, we should not in the first instance try to you know go to ancient history and find a Parthian invasion that kind of lines up with chapter 9 or try to compare what we see in chapter 9 with a modern army and compare what we see with a tank or a helicopter. When we do that, we miss the main point of chapter 9. There's something more than a human army in view here. Notice again, the horses have heads like lions tails like serpents with heads fire smoke and sulfur comes from their mouths fire smoke and sulfur were common signs of divine judgment in the old testament the imagery here it is intended to horrify it is intended to be grotesque to evoke terror to picture something even demonic The language here is not trying to convey a literal description of a human army 200 million strong. There are definite parallels as well with the four horsemen of the first four seals. The first four horsemen killed a fourth of humanity. The sixth trumpet, what does it do? It intensifies the impact of the judgment, the impact of the four horsemen. Here we have demonic powers working through a human army, a massive army that will take human life on a massive scale. Point two in your outline. God uses human, natural, and demonic powers to judge those opposed to him. That is not only taught here, but throughout scripture. God uses human, natural, and demonic powers to judge those opposed to him. And of course, this evokes a question why would God judge? Isn't God's isn't wrath something beyond or below God's grandeur? Doesn't that just feel wrong to talk about God judging or being full of wrath? First of all, God is love, God is holy, God is just you cannot say God is wrath. That is not a true statement. God is love. God is holy. God is just. That's the essence of his nature. His wrath is his holy, just, determined response to all that dishonors him, all that is opposed to him. God loves just because of who he is. He responds in wrath against human rebellion against the activity of demonic powers. And he does that out of his holiness, out of his love, out of his justice. When we as human beings observe the impact of evil or injustice, we lament. (laughs) Our visceral response is, how long? But we saw the souls under the altar crying. God's visceral response to injustice is wrath. This cannot continue. Let me read something written by Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian. And he had always struggled with the idea of God's wrath. Let me read it. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. You see, when we suffer injustice, When we are suffering under the impact or influence of evil, we don't want a God who is malleable, likable, soft, tolerant. We really want, in those moments, a God who is just, who is holy, who is loving, who is active. You see, wrath is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. Tolerance is. And so in our society, in our day, when we make these statements of tolerance, we're actually not communicating that we love. What we're communicating is that we're apathetic, that we just don't care. That's what tolerance communicates. You see, when when sin is not judged, sin is not considered to be serious. And when sin is not considered to be serious, then those harmed by sin are not considered to be of value. And when those harmed by sin are not considered to be of value, then there is absolutely no reason for Jesus to come for our salvation. Why would Jesus need to come if we're okay? If the world is okay? If everything is going to end okay? Why Jesus? Richard Niebuhr when he observed just the watering down of the gospel in his day, he is an American theologian living you know, the first half of the 20th century. He wrote a lament. This is what he wrote. A God without wrath brought me without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. Let me repeat that. This is not what he believed, but what he was observing. A God without wrath brought me without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. You see, if we don't believe in a God who is holy, just, loving, and capable of wrath, of judging evil, (laughs) the gospel is completely gutted. It has no value, no meaning. The spirit of our age is to be a bit double-minded. We sometimes want a God who loves us through Jesus. But we don't want the sin that he died for to be worthy of judgment. We want a God who works justice on our behalf when we suffer injustice, but at the same time, we want a God who tolerates all things. You see, once we have discarded the wrath of God, we also reject God's love, his justice, His holiness. God's judgments, they reveal His character. They reveal His love, His holiness, and justice. God's judgments reveal His character. Now let's take a look at the end of chapter 9. We see something rather shocking. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So although those who dwell on the earth, those opposed to God and his people even though that they have suffered under the impact of the first four trumpets, those natural disasters, even though they've been tortured by the very demons they worship, even though one-third of humankind now lies dead, the remaining two-thirds reject God and return, refuse to submit to him. They refuse to repent. It's shocking. Kolbrugge, a Dutch theologian, wrote, everything breaks except the human heart. <laughs> The sixth trumpet, it's the last warning before the end, the last warning. But instead of People changing their minds, changing their ways. The remaining two-thirds, they choose to follow their idols. Instead of turning to the one who actually created them, sees them, knows them, hears them, can act on their behalf, instead of turning to the one seated on the throne, they choose to continue to worship their idols that cannot see, that cannot hear, that cannot speak, that cannot do anything on their behalf. They're blinded by their idols. And according to Paul, it is demonic power that works through those idols. So people are being destroyed by the very idols they worship. And idolatry, of course, is anything that we put in the place of God in our lives. Anything. It can be a person. It can be a spirit. It can be sex, pleasure, money, possessions, power, fame. Whatever we put in the place of God is our idol. Robert Mounts, commentator on Revelation, writes about these verses. Nowhere will you find a more accurate picture of sinful humanity pressed to the extreme. One would think that the terrors of God's wrath would bring rebels to their knees. Not so. Past the point of no return, they respond to greater punishment with increased rebellion. Such is sinful nature, untouched and unmoved, by the mercies of God. You see, God's purpose in these partial judgments is to move people to repentance. He wants them to escape eternal separation from him, the final judgment, to escape hell. God's judgments reveal his desire that all repent and avoid final judgment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but have eternal Life. That's God's heart. If we return to our Russian doll again, let's say that the doll just represents me or you. Again, you know, you look at a person and there's the surface, and we can be here well dressed and presentable, but underneath there are layers, and God sees every layer of our lives. Even the dark layers, God knows us intimately. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the message of Jesus, is that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though God knew of our darkness, our rebellion, our resistance to Him, He sent Jesus. That's love. And he did that so that in his justice, in his holiness, he might be able to receive us through Jesus. Jesus died in our place. He took our sin upon himself. Paid the price we could never pay so that we might be reconciled with God. So that we might be at peace with God. So that we might know Jesus and receive the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, and live with him forever. That's love. That's grace. That's the gospel. And if you're here and you have never prayed you know, to just receive Jesus and receive the gift of salvation through Jesus, I'm going to stop right here and then I'm going to say a few, things, a few more things to all of us. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. And if you sense the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself right now and you want to surrender your heart right now, pray this prayer. And I'll, I'll put the prayer on the screen behind me, behind me and you can follow it. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. Before I even had a thought about you, thank you. I repent and I surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness for new life. Jesus, I need you. Lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person that you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, then, hey, I would love to talk to you or you can go to the Welcome Center, the Prayer Center. We'd love to encourage you in your journey. Jesus has so much for you. Now, one thing I want to point out. Did you notice who is protected from the judgments? Did you notice that some people are not touched by the impact of the judgments in Revelation 9? Verse four, those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. So if you have given your life to Jesus, then you have been sealed by him. Slaves in the first century, they were marked. And so you could tell who the owner of a slave was by what was written on their forehead. Followers of Jesus are slaves of Jesus. We carry his name. We are sealed by him. Paul writes in Ephesians and also in Second Corinthians that we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, sealed for the day of redemption. day of redemption is the day of the second coming of Christ, the day of the ultimate exodus. We are sealed by him. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. Come what may, we are sealed. There are obvious parallels here with um, the people of Israel in Egypt. And so as the plagues in Egypt intensified, God protected the people of Israel. And then with the tenth plague, those families that had the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost, they were not touched by the tenth plague, right? Protected by the blood of the Passover lamb. So in Revelation 6 through 9, the people of God, they're sealed, they're protected before the seals and trumpets even begin. They're sealed by the Passover lamb, the little lamb that is in the middle of the throne who was slain, who had been slain, and is now standing, resurrected. Those sealed by God are not only protected through this time of of tribulation, they overcome. They overcome. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples that they would be able to trample Serpents and scorpions. Those that who are in Jesus actually have authority over demonic powers. So we, as God's people, do not walk in fear. Rather, we allow the light of Jesus to shine through us. God's judgments reveal the light of Jesus shining through his followers, through his sealed people. As followers of Jesus, how should we live in light of the coming trumpets? Now and then. As we read here in chapter 9, the trumpets will bring confusion. Some people will fall into despair. Some will respond with a death, with a death wish. They, they want to die, but they can't. Others will respond with an even greater hardening toward God. So how do we respond to those in despair now and then? First of all, we do not condemn people in anger. We reach out with compassion. If we suffer injustice, we don't avenge ourselves. This is the clear teaching of Jesus. We don't avenge ourselves. We love our enemies. We care deeply about all forms of suffering, physical, mental, emotional, relation, all forms of suffering, but especially about eternal suffering. What enables the trumpets to bring about repentance? Repentance. We noticed as we read through the book, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 9 of Revelation that even though the trumpets had taken place and people had been impacted by the trumpets, many, two-thirds, remained rebellious at the end. So what is it that allows people to respond to the gospel? Well, the witness of God's people. God's judgments are an opportunity for his people to join him in his mission, and we'll see that in chapters 10 and 10. And 11. So how should we live? Well, we share the message of Jesus' love for all by confessing and repenting for our sin before God and one another. By remaining grounded in God's word and aware of the signs of our times, we live awake. By being people who worship and pray and we just cultivate a deep relationship with Jesus. By loving those around us, people who suffer loving them through our actions and also through our words. Because if people are going to come to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for them, we need to speak. God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is present among us. And as God's people, in this time and in the times of come, to come, we have the wonderful privilege of walking as the sealed people of God who carry the gospel. That's a privilege. That is a gift that God has placed in our hands. Something for us to steward in our day for his glory. Amen? Amen? Let's stand for prayer. So Father, we thank you again that by your grace you have drawn us to yourself. Thank you. We would not turn to you on our own. It's only by your grace. And you have made us your sons and daughters through Jesus. What a gift. So Lord, may we be people that walk in confession and repentance. Humble before you, humble before one another. May we be, Lord, a people that worships in spirit and truth, that prays, that believes you for great things in our day. May we be your people reaching out in compassion to those around us. Love for those who suffer. Loving through our deeds and also through our words. Father, in this day, may your light shine brightly in us and through us. And Lord, we know that we depend completely on you for that to happen. Thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to abide in us, to comfort us, to counsel us, to convict us, to lead us forward, to empower us. We are grateful. And so, Lord, on this Family Day weekend, we just turn our eyes to you in gratitude and say, Lord, have your way among us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.